Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. Camille Dungy is perhaps best known for her remarkable and award-winning, often environmentally focused poetry, and editing collections of environmentally focused poetry and writing by people of color, exploring the intersections of gender, race, art, environment, and culture. Camille's newest title is Soil, the Story of a Black Mother's Garden, and in honor of the great and biodiverse exuberance that is May and upcoming Mother's Day celebrations, Camille, it is such a pleasure to welcome you back to Cultivating Place. It is a pleasure to be back with you, Jennifer. How do you introduce yourself when you walk into a group of people you don't know? Not necessarily a professional event, but just a group of people. How do you introduce yourself? And if you were to include in that introduction the role of plants and gardens in that introduction, how would you include that? Wow, that's such an interesting question because I actually usually just say, hi, I'm Camille. (laughs) (laughs) And then my husband is the one who does all the other other things um, about uh, filling in the blanks um, uh, that I leave out. Uh, So I'm a woman who writes, I'm a mother, um, I'm a gardener and a daughter and a, and a wife and a member of community. I also like to cook and to bake. All of those things are part of my dailiness. Um, Mm -hmm. And so they're avocations as much as they are also vocations. um, And in some ways, part of how I make my living. And so maybe I want to think about that in terms of, um, (laughs) you know, nameplate titles for who I am. Yeah. Yeah. So many people might remember our previous conversation, but for those who don't, I would love to have you take us back a little bit to the people and the places and plants that might have grown you into a woman for whom your your poetry is an essential part of you your motherhood your daughterhood your wifedom if that's a word your work and your community including your garden in that community Camille and and maybe just take us on highlights because as we move into the germination story for soil the story of a black mother's garden A lot of these layers are going to come out as well, but maybe just some of the highlights for people to be acquainted with you. Sure. So in May of 2023, I'll publish my ninth book with my name on the spine is how I describe this. (laughs) Um, I have four poetry collections. I have edited or been on the editorial team for three book-length anthologies, and I have a collection of personal essays. And this newest book, Soil, the Story of a Black Mother's Garden, is a book-length narrative 
chronicling seven years of my family's efforts to diversify the landscape immediately around us from the ground up. And it is mostly prose, though there is also poetry in it. And there um, are photographic images and um, and it, it really has kind of a multimedia um, project for for a book, which is exciting to me. And I'd be happy to talk a little bit about why um, I wanted to do that also. Mm-hmm. But part of why is I think this kind of multivalenced way in which I find myself often living my life because I am a writer who's also an editor, who's also a professor. I'm a university distinguished professor at Colorado State University. I've been teaching the majority of my adult life really all my adult life in in honesty. (laughs) And I often think of myself with those three hats of teacher, writer, editor, but I also am a mother. um, And that is everything (laughs) all consuming in usually a positive way and sometimes a very overwhelming way, particularly having come out of the last three, I guess, four years now um, of our experience um, in these post-COVID times. So I wanted to write a book that could hold a lot of those parts of me inside it because I didn't, I didn't want to limit the definition of who I was and who I could be on the page. And also because I'm working to grow this garden that's working in communion with the native landscape. I live in Northern Colorado and it's a beautiful, beautiful place, but I am learning. <laughs> I am constantly learning <laughs> how to grow things here. And I paused a little bit when I said things because I was trying to find a better verb, but because uh, there's a lot that I'm trying to grow, right? I'm trying to grow plants in my yard. I'm trying to encourage a kind of robust fauna um, also to come to visit uh, the flora that's in my yard, but also I'm trying to grow, you know, myself and my daughter and my family and, um, and, and the kind of strong community that I want to live inside. Um, I'm trying to grow all those things too. And so, yeah, so this kind of book that is doing a lot of things in a lot of different ways um, seemed to be the right way to hold those kinds of thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so we're just going to dive right into the book because there are so many themes and there is so much to um, explore in the themes you bring up around everything you just uh, included in this vessel that becomes soil. And 
the metaphor of that is rich and beautiful, and that is played out across the book as well. The Let's start right with the title, Camille, because it, it's playing on a couple of things and it's centering a couple of things that don't always get well-centered in our horticultural literature, let alone our environmental literature. And that is one of the themes you kind of start us off with is you as a mother, as a daughter, because your your parents are very intimately connected to the story, um, growing this garden, but being well-known as an environmental writer, and you contextualize your approach as opposed to the most conventional way in which we think of nature writing. So I, I would love I would love to have you first talk about the title and then that environmental writer context. Why is it the story of a black mother's garden? Why isn't it the story of my garden, like Jamaica Kincaid wrote, or the, you know, the the story of a black woman's garden? Talk to us about the complexity and the importance there of what you're centering. Isn't that Jamaica Kincaid book so delightful? My garden book. <laughs> yeah, it, it blew my mind wide open in 1995 <laughs> as a young mother and gardener. And I went, oh my word. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How much do I not know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the soil part uh, has long mm -hmm. been on my mind. Um, I think when I first began dreaming towards this project, Soil felt like it could be in the title. I, I love the the multiplicity of soil and the word soil and what it means that it both means something fertile out of which things can grow. And it means to be sullied um, and damaged and dirtied. Um, and I think that for me as a black mother in mm. america those are twinned realities all mm. the time mm. i'm always thinking about hope and about growth and about future and possibility and i'm always thinking about terror and damage and devastation um both and and so just the very word <laughs> feels like the story of a black mother's um life the word soil itself mm -hmm. but a garden ends us in the bounty right ends us in the possibility but not a not a not a bounty and possibility that is not without work this is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Camille Dungy is a university distinguished professor at the University of Colorado and an award-winning eco-poet. She is speaking with us today about her newest title, Soil, the Story of a Black Mother's Garden, which was published by Simon & Schuster on May 2nd. We'll be back for more with Camille right after a quick break. Stay with us.
Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to preserve, share, and celebrate gardens and America's gardening traditions. The Garden Conservancy's Open Days program is available nationwide and is a community of gardeners and garden enthusiasts. This year, the program is opening a variety of private landscapes to the public in 18 states, including new open days in Ohio's Portage County and Vashon Island in Washington, as well as new and returning gardens in Colorado, Missouri, and Texas, as well as expanding in mainstays like New Hampshire, Connecticut, Maine, and Wisconsin. Check out GardenConservancy.org for more information on becoming a member, gifting a membership, and getting tickets to Open Days Fun near you. Hey, it's Jennifer. So one of the things from this conversation with Camille that has really landed with me is the idea of complicated blessings and how our gardens and our garden impulses sit and grow within this concept, for better or worse. So many complicated blessings around which the texture of our garden lives is heightened and the importance of how we harness our gardener's agency is implicit. Thoughts on this, anyone? Feel free to send me a note, cultivatingplace at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing more about your complicated blessings in this gardened life. We're back now to our conversation with Camille Dungy, human, black woman, mother, wife, daughter, poet, thinker, and gardener, as we come back to our conversation about her most recent title, Soil, the Story of a Black Mother's Garden, Camille dives into her own sense of resistance against the conventional canon of nature writing that relies on the writer being in isolation. And it's not, as you say, uh, it is not work that is done alone, right? So one of the things I, I loved about the book is um, the the reference to a couple of, of things that other people might, um, or a couple of other writers and thinkers and growers that other people might be familiar with as well. It, you know, it harkens back to Alice Walker's In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, and it, it, it there, there is a history there, but there's also a history of garden writing and environmental writing that is very, very different than what you include and celebrate and protect, project in this narrative and why it's important to you to do that. Why was it important to add mother, which then immediately puts you in the context of others? and family, and thereby community. It will never cease to baffle me why so much 
of our canonical writing about people who are living in communion with the greater than human world is about those people doing that in solitude. I don't understand it. I don't, I really do not understand how it is that so many of the books that are considered great books are about people walking out into the woods by themselves, walking through the mountains by themselves, digging in the gardens by themselves. Like I just, I, I don't know why you want to be that alone (laughs) (laughs) for one thing. um, Right. Right. It's a very crowded planet. Like, can't we figure out how to, how to cohabitate, but also I actually cannot. Right. I mean, I just, it's not right. possible for me and it's not possible for many, many people to just walk out by themselves um, and do these things without having to think about other people or bring along other people or um, have their children with them or worry about elder care or any number of other questions of what it means to live in community with other humans, let alone other species on, um, on the planet. And I didn't, I didn't want to write another solitary nature book. I wanted to write about the, the complicated blessing of living intertwined with others. I love that complicated blessing because boy that is that is that is the truth of life and it is you know it was an interesting um exploration that you undergo in in launching this thread of the book uh and it's right from the start and you know you you bring up Thoreau going off to his his cabin and you bring up Muir going off to his mountaintops and you bring up an iconic book of The Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard. And you give the accolades that you see in these writings and in these perspectives at the same time that you are so open in this kind of curiosity of like, first, why would you want to be alone? And second, how the heck did you find time and space to be alone like that? Like, that is just not the reality. And that complication and blessing is what makes one of the many things that makes soil so rich as a life narrative of living with others and living with nature. And we can't do it on our own. You know, if I'm thinking in a really broader view in terms of global environmental catastrophe, this solitude vision it's not it's not the answer <laughs> for how mm-hmm. to correct the course we cannot all be wanting to be by ourselves in giant tracts of land um we really have to figure out how to create welcoming sustainable interwoven community with other human beings so that we can also create welcoming, sustainable, interwoven community with 
the other living beings with whom we cohabitate. And so that brings us to, um, you know, what you then go on to in a beautiful web-like fashion, moving forward and backward and sideways and around the story of you, your husband, your daughter, um, it, you start off more or less in 2020 when you, an award-winning, national, nationally recognized poet and academic, has been given this incredible honor of a Guggenheim Fellowship in order to allow yourself, actually, some time to yourself to focus on writing this book. That happens. And it's a beautiful recognition of of your um, value as as a writer uh, and a thinker in our world uh, in some of those, you know, very uh, public ways recognition comes. And right on the heels of it, we enter March of 2020 and lockdowns and you and your family have a young daughter and you make the decision that it will be you that stays home and teaches her, homeschools her during the lockdown because of the nature of your your husband's work. And so right there we come up against this, you know, the the tension as it were, were generative sometimes tension of solitude versus community and how to make the two kind of balance. T- take us from there. I don't want to. That was yucky. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's just, oh, God. There, there's a moment right in the beginning, Camille, where you say something like it's so heartbreaking. Like you want to want to homeschool your daughter, but you are so heartbroken at the loss of what you thought this this fellowship was going to be. And there's some um, some moment where where you and your daughter have this interaction in which she says, I know you would rather be working on your book than teaching me. And you say something like, maybe I shouldn't be so honest with my child all the time. Or there was another line that you're like, being honest with your child is often such a bummer. Like you become such a bummer of a mother uh, around all of these these topics. And I just, I, I wanted to put my head down on the table and pound it a little bit, <laughs> Camille. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, oh, I've I've brought a person into into a re- really difficult planet and a difficult moment. And um oh poor girl. I mean, she's being raised by two professors. And so we're like, we must be teaching <laughs> at all times and 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 moving towards truth and but sometimes that's hard. And the process of going through 2020 in particular and beyond, raising a child and really being the hands-on remote school proctor <laughs> um, and writing this book and watching this nation go through so many kinds of moral reckonings all at the same time really forced me to look at myself 
Um, and so I just had all that long, wonderful answer about why I'm baffled by the absence of mothers and families and other people in so much canonical environmental literature. But honestly, at the beginning of this journey, I was simply baffled and and annoyed. Um, and I didn't get, I don't think I yet had the language to explain why. I just felt often angry and excluded. And um, and there was another feeling um, that came when I read those books sometimes, which is like a uh, suspect or uh, incredulous, right? I would read these books and be like, mm -hmm. well, this isn't this isn't for me. It's not meant for me. It's almost meant to erase me and my reality. And so I got this Guggenheim, which I had applied for for 20 years, right? It wasn't just like, I just got the Guggenheim. Like I had actively applied and worked. One year when my daughter was an infant, I had to put in my materials full for full professor. And I figured, well, I, I'm pulling together that whole dossier. I might as well do the Guggenheim at the same time. These same people can write me letters, you know? So I was doing both applications. My father flew out from Iowa to Oakland to watch the child for 10 days while I did that application, which I did not. I received the full professor promotion, um, but I did not receive the Guggenheim that time. Like this is... To have received the Guggenheim, finally, there were years of work and a community of care that went into helping to make that possible for me. And I thought, I will now get to write for eight hours a day while my daughter's in school, like, you know, they they do in the movies. <laughs> the writers like <laughs> are that's how writers are supposed to live, right? I haven't been able to right, do this. Right. I had to be teaching and mothering and whatever. And then no, it almost instantly that went away. And it was work for me to understand that that was okay, that I could also still be a writer. And be doing this work of mothering and and helping my husband do what he needed to do um, and support him in that way. And um, like that, but it just meant a different kind of writing. <laughs> um, it meant a different, I had to write a different story than, than existed that I had seen. Yeah. And you are very successful in this. And you are very honest with us as readers and uh, as you are with your daughter about where where the world is and um, who her family is within that world. And and I I love the parallel throughout the book of us as mothers learning to mother as we go, uh, because there is no <laughs> – there is no – real uh, manual, except for the mothers who came before us. But at the same time that you are learning to garden as you garden and the land and the animals there teach you more and that the the garden is honest with you in many of the ways that you are honest with Callie or with your husband. So that there is beauty. Always there is beauty. But 
always there is brutality of some level that is um, twinned, as you said earlier, to that beauty. Um, And that just struck me over and over again as such an important inclusion and um, and and honesty for for us as as gardeners, as humans, as mothers, as women, as white people, as black people, to read all of that there and to have it now sit on that same um, bookshelf with the great books that came before it along those lines. Yes, Jennifer. I mean, I think since so many of your listeners really are horticulturalist and and thinking about you know landscape design and um and and theory and practice it's i'm trying in this garden as much as possible to honor the 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 kind of native landscape uh and um and i'm also trying to um practice i, I maybe permaculture maybe one of the words i don't there's so many rewilding there's a variety of different right, ways right. that we can think about it but 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 messy is honestly one of, one of the ways <laughs> that, that that looks like the right now it's it, it it will be some time before we have seven nights of evening nighttime temperatures over 45 degrees which is what the weather should be before I clear out the last winter's, um, you know, stocks and foliage and stuff. And honestly, it's not, you know, like I do not have the prettiest garden on the block right now. I really just don't, you know, like I want to be tearing down those, um, those stocks, but I know that they're homes for mm. a lot mm-hmm. of hopefully mostly beneficial um, insects and birds and things that I need to stop saying that I want this thing to look beautiful for me and um, and my idea of what a clean, neat perfect garden ought to look like I have to sit on my hands for another five weeks and let the last snows fall and the soil to warm up uh so before I clear out that scrabble and what thrives from that ugliness (laughs) will reward me for that patience and that's hard that is a hard lesson i have to relearn it every april and may (laughs) (laughs) here especially in in northern especially in northern colorado i i having been um actually born in loveland the town right below you and lived there for several of my adult gardening years it's that that like snow on May 1st is like it, it you just it's a gut punch um and it, it is a slow slow spring in in northern Colorado but as you say it will reward you and you've used a couple of words here that I think you know there is a parallel between the what we see and what we expect from environmental writing 
and what we see and what we expect from our gardens. And the importance of this exact moment in time to shift our language, shift what we see and what we believe is supposed to be included in a good ecological and beautiful garden and shift what we even see as messy versus beautiful. Because this is something I talk about with guests pretty much every week, Camille, and it is something I certainly talk about uh, when I am giving any public presentation. This idea, and and I had a, a fantastic interview with an entomologist uh, who who said to me something that just sticks with me. And that is that if you can look at a garden and it looks to your eyes as beautiful, you know, in quote, air quotes right there, but you don't hear the sound of birds and insects, then that is not a beautiful garden. That is a dead garden, right? And so what is messy versus lively? What is you know, richly biodiverse versus messy or ugly, like these are shifts we are making. And it's through, in large part, people just like you writing stories just like this, that we learn to see differently and we shift our expectations of not only what we expect, but what we want out of the richness of these spaces, whether that's environmental writing or that is the gardens right in front of us. Right. And then for me, the next step and back to circling back to why that black mother is important in the title is that for me, then it it's also a direct leap to how we treat other humans, right? That the messiness and unexpectedness and um, difference of appearance um, that happens when we meet people who are outside of our experience of quote unquote normal, I'm hoping (laughs) that a book like mine can help, help a reader see the ways in which these are these are same same kinds of conversations that a diversified landscape is a rich healthy vibrant life-sustaining landscape in all mm. the different ways that we can think about what diversity might mean yeah This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Camille Dungy is a university distinguished professor at the University Colorado and an award-winning eco-poet. She's speaking with us today about her newest title, Soil, the Story of a Black Mother's Garden, which includes prose, poetry, and beautiful images. It was published by Simon & Schuster on May 2nd. We'll be back for more with Camille right after a quick break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer again, riffing off the idea of complexity. The other idea from this conversation that I cannot shake is that of resilience and resistance together. When we consider the many, many challenges our world faces at this exact moment, those troubles that keep us up at night, that hobble us with doubt and grief, I ask myself, through the lens of my garden and gardening, 
What have I not sufficiently resisted? Where have I resisted and proven once again that the garden life from a garden culture of care is one nexus of resilience in our world? There is so much more we can more sufficiently resist. We each have to make our own lists on this, right? And that's the kind of things gardening mothers on this mothering planet do. What's on your list of things to more sufficiently resist and ways to cultivate greater resilience? I would love to know. Send me a note, cultivatingplace at gmail.com. And thank you, as always, for listening and for the cultivation of care in your place. We're back now to our conversation with Camille Dungy, human, woman, mother, wife, daughter, poet, thinker, and gardener. As we come back to our conversation, Camille is sharing more about her exploration of the legacy of hierarchical thinking versus interdependent thinking. There's a section in the book where, among other things, I talk about this copper plate um, made by a um, Franciscan priest named Diego de Valadez. And this particular copper plate is called the Great Chain of Being, and it is a marvel. It's it's a it's so incredible. I I made sure that there is a um a facsimile of the copper plate in the book so you can see it because I describe it and it's a was a delight to describe, but also it's just a wonder to then just spend some time with it. And God is at the top, and there's a demon who looks very much like a woman giving birth <laughs> yeah. um, at the bottom of this, this chain uh, of being yeah. and all the um, people and a variety of different kinds of animals and um, trees are at the very bottom, just above the demons and the devil. And that kind of hierarchical thinking that there is a top and a bottom um that the crowded space at the bottom is more hellish and the space at the top there's more space there's more openness up near heaven like all of that like just filters so much into a lot of thinking of uh those of us who are influenced by Judeo-Christian ideologies. And there are a lot of things about Judeo-Christian ideologies that I deeply value through the book. I talk about the ways that that being raised in the church is so important to the good parts of who I am, most notably that whole love your neighbor as yourself rule. Um, but also this idea of God as separate, um, and as, uh, like that there are 
differences between us that are there that are hierarchies of value i mm-hmm. i am forever working myself working towards reframing that narrative um because it does not feel to me to be a narrative that helps sustain um a truly healthy existence um for me or my neighbors on this planet yeah yeah i'd love to get to the garden itself um, sure. because people will will love to hear about it and i want to hear about it myself camille um it is you know it is permeated with all of this philosophy, all of this thinking, all of this theology in many ways of what it means to be a gardener and to grow the world better. Describe your garden a little bit and and maybe describe your your prairie project and um, some of your, you know, uh, native incorporation as well as the dooryard garden, which is so beautiful. and and then we'll we'll go from there. I live in a suburb, which is, um, again, not one of those things that we necessarily think about when we're thinking about people writing about the wild world. You're not necessarily thinking about (laughs) somebody who lives in a 1980s um, planned community um, with cul-de-sacs and such like that. Um, But that's where I live. Uh, It's it's. a uh when we moved in it was grass a few junipers and some arborvita and like a couple other plants um and uh like river rock hardscaping and things like that and year by year we've moved into the sod cut out different toxins of sod or used lasagna method or I've tried so many different ways of um doing this kind of regeneration um and reclaimed some of the areas of lawn for flowering beds and also pulled rock and turned them into um living vegetation spaces as well and there is was one side lawn that was a pretty substantial size but was so overrun with with thistle in particular uh that we couldn't use it my daughter couldn't use it to play in um and so which is the one reason that we still have any of the lawn that we have is that my daughter has insisted justifiably that she would like some place to run around <laughs> so we've um right, right. we've kept some lawn but not this one in 2019 we removed the sod from that um south lawn and um I replaced it with native and naturalized um, um, plants. And I'm actually pretty excited because 
this will be year three. So this is the year, right? When it's really going to be itself. It takes about three years for, for a garden like that to really come into itself. So I'm excited for that. Um, and it is filled with milkweed and pinstamen and, um, oh, there's another word for it, but I actually kind of love it. It's common name, gay feather. Um, oh yeah. Liatris. Oh, thank beautiful. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, it was a beautiful plant palette they, that you got for that space. Yeah. yeah. So many, so many lovely, lovely plants. And so, and there's some flowers and columbine and, um, and what a joy now, you know, it was just like really ugly, ugly, weedy, depressing grass. And now it's all of this and a bird bath that we put up with a bee and butterfly feeding station and a couple bird feeders. And it is alive. That space is alive now in such an exciting way. That side um, plot, which we now call the Prairie Project, um, and then um, approaching our front door, there was a smaller patch that had rock and I pulled the rock out um, and it had an Arbor Vita that died and I pulled that out um, and um, I overplanted <laughs> in that section <laughs> and it's just, just kind of full to the brim with all kinds of different things, including um, the plant that gave it I, made me give it the name the dooryard which is this enormous um whip wild whipping hollyhock which just made it feel like an english dooryard to me um that yeah and so that's why i call it the dooryard and it just that just sort of as you walk up to my door there's this um pretty insane <laughs> um robustly growing um patch of flowers that suggests that I may not be the world's best gardener because there are too many things growing (laughs) in that small space. I have learned over time um, not to, you know, be so busy with my um, seed sowing, but I get really excited. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, you think about it and, and, um, so does Mother Nature, right? She gets super excited with her seeds and out they go and they're everywhere. And um, so sometimes it might not be get less busy with seeds. It's be a little less controlling about what happens to them. And you're, you're sort of parable of that hollyhock and where she wanted to be and where mm-hmm. she grew well and how she kind of waves at you as you pass by. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a beautiful, um, a beautiful illustration of listening to the garden and the plants there and what they need and want um as well as listening to to the the many creatures i'd love for you to share a little bit about um about m- maybe a few of these lessons that you you sort of unfold for us across the narrative of the book one of them being the bunnies um and and this idea of what it is to love our neighbors both your human neighbors next door and their row of of roses of hybrid tea roses and these lovely little um northern cal uh, northern I keep wanting to say california northern colorado 
uh, little bunnies in your garden. Mm-hmm. Um, you probably keep wanting to say California partially because that's where you're based, Jennifer, but also because I grew up in California and yeah, yeah. Write about you are California, a Western woman, right? Yeah. In the book, and so I write in the book back and forth, really, between my childhood in Southern California. And um, my daughter's childhood in um, northern Colorado and also some of my own time living um, on the East Coast, specifically when I lived in North Carolina and Virginia. And so the, the, the book explores these geographies and and like what makes home in in these kinds of geographies. One of the animals we learned to know in 2020 and beyond as we as we sat still in our house you know looking outside more were the local native bunnies these mountain cottontails and um we have a lot of them <laughs> um, who live in and around our yard. And um, my daughter named them. They're, they're territorial. And so they sort of had little, they had specific territories in the yard. So we would kind of know them by their territories. And then we start, started to know them by their pelts and their color patterns and their sizes and things as well. And um my daughter came up with a delightful list of names for all of these bunnies, um, which I, I just, I, one of the things I love about writing is I get to record, right. And I get to keep these right, memories right. and, and maybe it's one of the reasons I don't understand why you would want to, why I wouldn't want to erase my family because she's just, a, she's great. It's like just great material. Um, and I don't want to miss having that opportunity and being able to keep that on the page. But these mountain cottontails, um, maybe they like everybody's yard, but they really like our yard. Um, and I came to think partially because we had a lot of the plants that are also native to this landscape, um, which meant some things about what I could plant <laughs> because right, right. there were some things that they really liked. They really liked. Um, and they would mow those down to the ground, you know? And so I'd, I'd have yeah. to make some really tough decisions about, did I want to fence the rabbits out? Did I want to plant more of this plant? So like they couldn't possibly eat them all or print more mature versions that, you know, there were all kinds of machinations I went through to try and decide how to cohabitate with these delightful bunnies and the pretty flowers at the same time. But, but one of the the things that that led me to was research about what the plants and animals were. And I started noticing how frequently they had a common there was something in common in their taxonomical name and that was the name nettle. So yeah, it, like a lot of them were Natalii or Natalianum or Nuttles Cottontail is one of the names for the um, mountain cottontail. And so I was like, who's this 
Nuttall person <laughs> who is all over my garden. His name was all over my garden. And um, that that was like, you know, one of those, um, hey, Camille, you're having trouble writing this year because you're having to homeschool your kid and also do whatever. Let me just plant this nugget of glory right in your lap and it'll give you all kinds of stuff to research and um and write into and thomas nettle was a fascinating human being um who brought so much knowledge to euro-american botanical science um by um uh, digging up and identifying um, hundreds of species. And, um, and so through the book, there's a whole thread of the story of Thomas Nuttall, the story of westward expansion, the story of like the kind of core of discovery, right? That's sort of the, the mission that, that came from that um, Thomas Nettle walked pretty much along the same route that Lewis and Clark walked um, and not very long after. Let me clarify that. Thomas Nettle walked pretty much the same route that Lewis and Clark walked not very long after the core of discovery happened. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, and so I think what happens for me when I'm in a garden, when I'm in my garden, is I'm, I'm very, I'm like living in the present and like trying to manage undesirable weeds and figuring out why the drip irrigation isn't dripping where it's supposed to. And, um, right, and like right. so much like in this present moment, but then all of a sudden I'm like cast back to 1832. Right. And like, right. and then I'm some other place in time. And I, I love that about a garden that I can be in the present and the past and the future all at once. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I went yeah. in a lot and that, of directions there, Jennifer. Did that make sense? That's okay. No, it made total sense. <laughs> and, and and what it what it gets to is this web of life that you are you are trying to make visible for us. You know, whether it's how we decide to deal with our bunnies eating our plants who then you decide to live with because you you actually begin to love them and then you grieve one that has died in the garden um and and how we live with our next door neighbors who might be planting different plants than ours or you know using elements that we don't necessarily want in our garden and and working and living with them at the same time you know like the way you handle nuddle who could be just dismissed as another white guy who erased names, like to honor both the knowledge that he brought and his passion for these plants and how they then, you know, went back to Europe and then got reintroduced into our gardens in North America um, through his route. Like you honor both 
Uh, it is a very both also book instead of an either or, which is just a beautiful lesson that we get from the garden every day. Yeah, I mean, I think Nettle could have done some things differently, <laughs> right? Yes, yes. Um, yes. And, um, and, I, and I think that it's really important that we, hmm, it's really important that I hold history accountable for the horrors <laughs> and cruelties that were allowed and encouraged um and often not not sufficiently resisted but it's also important that I acknowledge the spaces of resistance that have always, always happened. <laughs> um, the um, spaces of alternative ways of existing that have always <laughs> um, been present for us. Um, and the ways that I, in this moment right now, benefit from both of those, right? So I benefit from those spaces of resistance and alternatives, but I also benefit from some of those really, really horrible things that this culture has witnessed and um, repeated. I've benefited, and as a as a black person in America, I have also been vulnerable to, right? And and traumatized by, and, right? And brutalized. Brutalized by. Um so yeah. like the like it's it has to be both and, right? Like I can't like I can't live in this body on this particular landscape without holding all of those complicated truths. Um all of them at the same time. And I don't, I don't feel the need not to hold all of those complicated truths all at the same time. I don't feel the need to like, this is the word whitewash <laughs> um, history, right. And make it look pristine and clean and uncomplicated. History is complicated. And acknowledging that gives us strength. Growth is complicated. <laughs> and acknowledging mm -hmm. that gives growth strength also, right? Yes. Yes. There is <clears throat> a beautiful chapter in which you take us back to uh, the election morning in 2016. And you you talk about that experience for your family living in northern california uh, colorado i keep doing that northern colorado and the idea of trying to blinder yourself and you actually literally pull your blinds uh because you you feel uh rightly so vulnerable uh worried anxious angry all these things and at the end of this chapter you 
you decide that you would rather have your blinds open so that you can see the garden than close yourself off from the reality of the world because you will miss its beauty um, as well as blinder yourself from from the 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 terror and the brutality and it's it's a very moving moment and specifically in that case it wasn't it wasn't just any beauty it was a beauty that wasn't supposed to happen it's a beauty that i was supposed to have cut short because it's not that plant was not growing the way it was supposed to be growing, but it was stunning. And I wanted to see it um, just do its own thing. And so like, it's not just that I wanted to open up to beauty. It was that I wanted to open up to a beauty that was only made possible because I refused to participate in cutting something, some other living beings, life force, off yeah yeah and it's not as you make very very clear um and our daily lives make clear if we're paying attention it's not just that history is this complicated and this awful uh it is that the present is as well and the experience of your husband on his bike uh, you know, having to choose where where he's going to ride that bike or not based on what is happening in the communities around you or anywhere, USA, and the experience of your daughter um, at church, at school, reading the news. Like, it is very present, not just historical. And these spaces of resistance in our gardens and our conversations within community um, hold, hold the the greatest possible agency in the narrative of the book um and certainly in my experience as well is there anything you would like to add about the physicality of the garden camille and that as a space for learning for solace for resistance for for hope and for community even well I mean, for me, and I, I write about this, but this is also, you know, this a perpetual fact, getting my hands in soil that doesn't have chemicals in it. I mean, the world is chemicals, that's, um, but <laughs> um, <laughs> industrial pesticides and pesticides in it helps me, right? I mean, study after study is now showing that, like, it, truly actually is beneficial <laughs> to the body and mind um in very clear neurochemical ways um and so i am grateful to the garden and i um am grateful to have that um space myself i don't i don't know that you need a garden in the way like that you necessarily need to have a track of land to work right like working with a house plant uh working in a container garden working in a community garden volunteering someplace where um 
anywhere where you can participate in an organic growing environment that is concerned with helping helping things to grow right and i i particularly i particularly like flower gardens at, you know flower grasses forbs shrubs whatever um in a way that's different to me than vegetable gardens because um, there's a different kind of reciprocity um, at stake that a lot of the flowers that I grow, like wildflowers, they are useless in a vase. You cannot cut these things down and make a bouquet of them. They just wilt instantly um, and uh, sometimes have like really weird, weird little um bugs that <laughs> that that um <laughs> that, you know like that that they work in in co collaboration with but I'm like you don't need to be in my dining room <laughs> you know? right like, so all of that means that they just live they just live they live their cycle mm -hmm. and then when they finish living their cycle some of them stay on the stock until they turn to seed and then I have new seeds for the next year and some of them get eaten by the birds and on we go like that's quote unquote, all I get from them. And that feels so useful to me to have some relationships with neighboring beings that are really pretty low in the reciprocity cycle, <laughs> you know? It's not like this tomato plant has to give me 15 tomatoes or it's not worth it to me. Um, and when I'm thinking about how I'm adjusting my own mindset about value, learning how to love a garden that in many ways offers me nothing of value um, has been one of the most valuable things <laughs> that I could yeah. have done with the last decade of my life. Mm. Mm. You mentioned in the beginning that this was a multi-platform project for you and you really liked that about it. Can you elaborate a little more for, for listeners? Because they will hear this conversation two days after the print book publishes and uh, they would love to know more, I'm sure. Sure. I would be really happy to talk about that. Um, so as the book progressed. Um, and I can tell you, any of you who are interested in writing process questions, um, at first, this book was just 20 minutes a day. <laughs> 20 minutes a day, I would sit down and record whatever I saw or was thinking. And that was it. That was really all I had <laughs> um, to do. And those 20 minutes build up. Um, and eventually as, as we progressed through the year, it became 500 words a day and then a thousand words a day and then onward. But, um, the units 
hold together very much like a home garden might. So there are different sections or plots um, that you can kind of move from one to the next. And sometimes it feels like there's a very cohesive unit. Um, and then it flows to another cohesive unit that will start to feel like a whole. And so I wanted to organize the book in a way that feels like a garden. Um, and also, I am a poet, and um, and I talk about being a poet in the book, and um, and I was writing poems along at the same time, and some of those poems show up in the book, maybe in the way again, continue to visualize a garden, maybe in the way that as you move through somebody's garden, there's a different kind of focal point, you know, a gazing stone or a or a mosaic stepping stone that is of that space and also slightly different from that space. Um, that's part of how I was hoping the poems might work, that they're part of the narrative um, and also um, different from the narrative in some ways. And then also, I know that we live now in a visual moment and it's one thing to be told in words what these plants look like. And I try to do a good job of describing the plants so you can see them um, and experience them and smell them and know what they feel like. But I also don't want you having to rush to Google <laughs> while you're reading my right, book right. <laughs> <laughs> to, to feel like you can know things. And so I had a friend come over with a good quality camera um, and take some pictures of the plants. And my daughter was really interested in this process. And Mary Ellen handed over the camera to my daughter. And the next thing I knew, my daughter was taking pictures, such good pictures that we ended up buying my daughter a good quality camera for Christmas that year. And so I actually don't know in the book which of the pictures were Mary Ellen's and which of the pictures were Callie's. And Mary Ellen oh, and Callie love that. Um, yeah. And I handed over those photographs and some clippings, um, early fall clippings from the garden that I sent to an artist named Dion Lee who lives in Ohio. And she took these clippings and the photographs and made these photograms, um, these photographic images using these. And they are also sprinkled throughout the book. And so that's the three different women per image um, that I just find that like that representation of community in that process and those those photographs um, serve as little borders, really, um, between each of the sections of, of your garden tour in the book. In 
Um, I also recorded the audiobook. Um, I hosted a podcast uh, from the Metropolitan Museum of Art with a podcast production team called Magnificent Noise, who were fantastic and taught me a lot about how to speak into a microphone for a podcast. So um, I hope you're getting some of that benefit of that too, Jennifer. Um, <laughs> we definitely are. And so I wanted, because of the podcast and because Soil is such a personal book, I wanted to be the voice of it. And so I am also, I also did the audio recording um, and I'm pretty sure I am not a hundred percent certain, but I'm pretty sure you're also going to get some, um, there's a song that Callie and I sing um, kind of early on in the book. Um, yeah. About like the, the, the convention of the lone nature writer and in the audio version of the book, I think you're going to get the recording of our singing oh, of that song. That's so great. So whereas you aren't necessarily going to get those, um, the photographs, you'll get me reading the poems and then you'll get this kind of that audio component. That's another. And I think aren't gardens like that art gardens multi-layered mm -hmm. and yes um, and really kind of multi-genre in a sense um and so that's why I wanted this project um in both the print version and the audio version to be able to honor that that kind of texture yes yes oh I look forward to that do we think the audiobook will will be um, ready at the same time as the print book, or will it publish a little bit later? The hope is that it should be ready at the same time as the print book. Great. Great. I would love to end with uh, having you read a little something. <laughs> Why don't I read that bit on the, on 308? And the, I guess the only other than context that your readers might need one whole other thread we didn't even discuss in the book is because this happened in 2020 in northern Colorado um much of the book happened simultaneous to what um is still the largest fire in Colorado state history which came to within 10 miles of my house and so there were months um in this book where we're also under the smoke cloud and red skies and a kind of really palpable ambient terror that was met metaphorical for my family to the palpable cultural terror um, that was happening um, politically and um, racially throughout this country. So all of that was happening um, also as I'm just trying to garden. Um, some days not able to um, for either exhaustion, fear, or um, concern about smoke inhalation. I collected milkweeds, cotton-borne seeds, from pods that burst and spread their white fluff all over our yard. To encourage genetic diversity in the next crop, I picked a few from this plant, a few from another. 
I place these into a paper bag to deliver to the friend who takes our river rocks. It is more than hope my garden gives me. Examples of resilience keep me coming back to walk this path in gratitude and wonder. Without resilience, what is hope but a passing fancy? Faith is the belief in things not seen, or it is the hope that what has not yet materialized might someday manifest. I am loosely quoting Hebrews 11.1, in which people hope for some future when a crucial promise might somehow be fulfilled. One of the hallmarks of faith is to believe in a promise and, though the promise has yet to come to pass and may never in my lifetime be fully fulfilled, to find a way to carry on, to discover and honor what has come to fruition. I dig up a lot of awful history when I kneel in my garden. But, my God, a lot of beauty grows out of this soil as well. All morning, all day, all through the night of the last Sunday of October, snow fell. Snow stuck to our roofs and our yards, our bushes and our trees. According to the multicolored measuring stick Callie and I assembled as a snow gauge, nearly 14 inches fell. 20 inches up near Beaver Meadows where the Cameron Peak fire raged. Dead and down trees continue to smolder even with the new moisture, but the snow and cold gave crews a boost in their efforts to slow the blaze. Cooler air and added moisture mitigated much of the worst of the fire. Crews didn't fully contain the Cameron Peak fire until early December. It took even longer to completely extinguish it. We always live under the threat of new and worse fires, but the reprieve helped. We could breathe steadily again, and we welcomed the difference. Snow swallowed ambient noise and quieted the yard. For months, it felt as if my whole world burned. What a relief to see the sky spill snow and not ashes. I trust that some of the root balls and seeds and bulbs and seedlings I have dug into our garden's soil will soak in the slowly released hydration delivered by snow. Soon, but not too soon, our plot will explode into glorious, multicolored blossoms. Thank you very much, Camille Dungy, for being a guest on Cultivating Place today. Your new book, Soil, the Story of a Black Mother's Garden, is creative and courageous and a deep cultivation in our horticultural and cultural world. Thank you so much for your work. Thank you, Jennifer, for this really, really 
gracious conversation. Um, it is always a pleasure to talk with you and um, and especially about this book because it was it was, you know, scary to write and lovely to write. And I really appreciate knowing that a reader like you, who I, I really respect, has found such a welcome in it. So thank you. Camille Dungy is a university distinguished professor at Colorado State University and an award-winning poet, often referred to as an eco-poet. She has been recognized with fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, Cave Canem, and the Guggenheim Foundation. In 2021, she received the Academy of American Poets Fellowship in recognition of distinguished poetic achievement. She has more than nine books of prose and poetry to her name. Her latest, Soil, the story of a Black mother's garden, was published by Simon & Schuster on May 2nd, 2023. My conversation with Camille lasted well beyond our on-air time. For the full, rich conversation we enjoyed, please make sure to listen to the podcast version of Cultivating Place over at cultivatingplace.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Join us again next week when we continue our Mother's Day theme in conversation once again with Deb Prinsing, founder of the Slow Flowers Movement, co-founder of Bloom Imprint Press, and Flower Lover. Because, well, flowers and Mother's Day go together. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Thank you for your support. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation and the Garden Conservancy. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with weekly tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX public radio exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.